um, commandment. We've been understanding these more in the context of wisdom sayings. They don't refer to themselves as commandments, but we know them as the Ten Commandments. We're on the seventh one, which is adultery. So um, if you've been having a good day, I'm going to put a stop to that here in just a minute. Um, Number one, uh, we've got two trips uh, that are going overseas in the next couple months. Um, or no, in the next couple of weeks, uh, even less. It's uh, the 13th of June. One leaves in the 14th of June. 13th is Cambodia. You've been made aware of that, I'm sure. It's a lot of folks that are going on that trip. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's like a half a dozen of you. Um, it's been a long time since we've been overseas at all, and we are anxious to get back together with our friends uh, and be supportive to them. Uh, so thank you for those of you who are going. And kind of our catch-all phrase for missions is give or go. You know, if you can't go, then just give. And you all have done that. A significant portion of what you give on a regular basis goes to missions. But then there's sort of the special kinds of things that we are hoping to do on those trips and ways to support those that are gone. And you've also done that. So thank you. If you would like to know more about how you could support this trip, um, uh, hopefully you're getting that sort of weekly email. I think it's called our Reconnect. There's information in there. There's also a hard copy on the reception desk on your way out. You might want to grab that if you want to support that. And then um, we're heading back to Africa. It's not a team per se. It's uh, Ryan Gallatin and I. We're a pretty good team, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's been four years since you were there, and I usually like to make at least one kind of logistical run in advance of a big team going so we can see if everything's the way it used to be. So uh, we'll go over there and we'll uh, see about the track to get there and how that's going. There's a couple different things you got to do to get where we go in Africa. And then uh, also be able to assess uh, some of the needs uh, and hear directly for what's going on there so I can come back and we can kind of get excited about how we can contribute to them. And then you can pray about going whenever it is we happen to go. So uh, uh, thank you for your support of those trips. We'll send them off next week, Sunday morning. We'll get everybody up here and we'll pray for them and send them out. Uh, the second thing uh, is a financial appeal uh, to you. I, I know that you're aware of the building project and that's going swimmingly well. Ron is just killing it. I didn't even, you know, there's people that, that take care of details and lead through details well. And then there's Ron, who just like blow in my mind. And it's finally on track, which was no fault of Ron's to begin with. We have a new general contractor. Uh, he's among us in this church, the Berlins. We love them, and they're doing a phenomenal job. It's really cranking. And we have the resources secured uh, for the most part for that, for that project. And we've even got the costs reduced by, whew, Ron, what would you say? Almost like 10%, 15% since the original quote. So uh, that's doing really well. It's the more like regular giving that's kind of suffering right now. And it happens in the summer too. So my question to you, my appeal to you is, don't forget about your regular giving as the summer goes on. And where you can be more sacrificial uh, during the next two or three months, it's going to be very helpful to the church. So thank you for the giving that you do. Remember through the summer. Very helpful. All right. Thank you for that short uh, little thing. All right. Um, the seventh piece of wisdom that we get uh, that was recorded by Moses on Mount Sinai. You remember, they're, they're three months into what they don't know is going to be a 40-year journey. 
And God's setting them up early to understand how it is they are to become his people, how they are to flourish as a, as a nation, as a tribe, as the kingdom of God. And he gives them in very clear format 10 things, just 10 things. And we've been talking through those. And here we are in number seven in Exodus chapter 20. I, I think it might be verse six. I don't know. He basically says, no adultery which is physical intimacy. I'm going to try to be sensitive and use particular words. You'll, you'll know what I mean uh, just because of the mixed company in the room. Uh, physical intimacy outside the bounds of marriage. None of that. The whole concept, uh, and all, the, all that in, is encompassed in that concept is, well, I don't need to tell you, culturally controversial. Right? When it comes to physical intimacy in our world, in our culture, in our lives, um, the pushback on that is that the church is antiquated with its stilted views of uh, intimacy, that like hetero, monogamous, religious views are out of touch with reality. Um, there's a pretty violent reaction to um, really by by society at large, to um, moral criticism. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, like if, you, if you bring to bear something to society or to individuals and say, you know, this is what is morally good and beautiful and right, before you even talk about it, you're going to get pushed back on that. Um, and I, I don't, it's very rare to find um, humility on a, on, a, on a broad scale when it comes to personal accountability. You, know, you just like when you bring up the subject of physical intimacy and, and if you think talk about moral uh, bounds and those sorts of things, you're going to get pushed back. Um, uh, and, that, and that's rooted in almost an, what is becoming an inability for people to subject themselves to others and to structures for and to be accountable. We don't, the society doesn't want personal accountability. You stay out of my life, but, uh, you know, keep it to yourself. Don't, don't bring that in here. People have always been, it's not just our society, people have always been put off by any kind of moral superiority or suggestion that they, they might be wrong in some phase of their life, any phase, really. So, when you start marching down this path of this particular command, this saying, this obedience, you're not going to get any support from the culture. Like, you'll be swimming upstream if you're trying to obey God here. Probably in any case, but this one is, I think, do I need to go on? Like, this is a big one. It's pretty hard to have this conversation at large and find support for um, restraint. You'll probably even be criticized or demeaned if you're vulnerable and honest about the struggles um, within this space. <clears throat> Maybe this goes without saying, but when we get to this point in the sayings and the commands, it gets very personal right here. I mean, all the commands have personal implications, obviously. 
Right, but this is, this is getting pretty deep. The first three, you know, they're about our relationship with God, our identity with God. The fourth, the Sabbath, is how we rest in those promises, those realities. So the first four, like about you and God, it's about that relationship, how you carry yourself. Then we start working it out into society, and it goes to the family. We talked about what it means to have an honoring family system. Last week, Adam handled murder wonderfully. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of anger that leads in that direction, and we're talking about uh, how we interact and how we handle the, the, the angers and the, how the hurts drive us to these violent spaces, whether subject to law or not, we can be murderous in our thoughts. And then we have this one on adult, this adultery, this, <laughs> you know, Jesus is getting in your chili pretty deep here. It's just like physical intimacy, desire, shame, infidelities, things like that, right? It's pretty wicked. Like when this book was written back in, I don't know when the Scarlet Letter was written. Do you guys know this book by Nathaniel Hawthorne? I have a copy from um, my grandmother. This is, this is her Christmas, Christmas gift to her in 1899. It's pretty phenomenal. I probably shouldn't be touching it. It's under glass or something like that. You know the Scarlet Letter story? I don't know if the young people are reading this in high school or not. I, I seriously doubt it. This is about Hester and Pearl. Hester, the, the woman of this small town who committed adultery. And as a punishment for that, had to wear around her neck and hanging on her front a big letter A for adultery. And, and the whole story, it's a novel symbolizing the public disgrace inner turmoil, fracturing of a community all around this um, incident of adultery. Um, it's an uncomfortable read. I think the reality, as much as the culture may want to deny it, that the book that Hawthorne really gets at is the absolute mess we find ourselves in when we minimize what really does happen in society, in the lives of people, in, the, in your own heart when you're subject to or um, disobedient in the area of physical intimacy outside the marriage. What happens across the board is devastating. I think you could say that Hawthorne probably captures exactly what Moses what God had Moses record as one of really only five outward things important for human flourishing. Think about this. God is revealing to Moses for the, the people of God then and through until now and us really only five things apart from our relationship with God that we need to be attentive to and obedient to and urgent about. Murder, anger, lying, stealing, covetous, which is basically jealous greed, and adultery. It's, it's pretty big. It's a big deal. Are you with me? It's one, it's one of only five things God says, these, this is it. 
This is what you got to pay attention to. I think maybe the first step of healing and health in this space is to recognize, to fight against society and say, no, this is of extreme importance how we handle our physical intimacy and the desires and all that come along with it. Sometimes referred to as the great sin or the grave sin. And maybe because it almost always leads to a breaking of all the other commands. <laughs> the, the, the effect of this disobedience is huge. It affects, well, even just, just, even just isolated to the 10 commands, the 10 sayings that we've been looking at. Is this going to impact your relationship with God? Absolutely. It's going to impact the identity that you get from being God. Yes. And is it going to affect the way you carry the name of God into the world? Yes, it's going to. Is it going to affect your rest? Yeah. Family breakdown? Mm-hmm. Murder and anger? Sometimes. Lying? Stealing? Jealousy? Yeah, it's probably at the root. Throughout the Old Testament, there's so many passages about uh, infidelity, whether with God or a spouse or in a contract. It, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a broad condemnation for adultery. And it emphasizes the, 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 the detrimental consequences of it. And maybe at the root of it is maybe the, both, the most precious is thing the right word? The most precious thing that we enjoy, have within any relationship is trust. Y'all know the number of people that you trust to the degree that you are vulnerable in that relationship, right? You trust them to the degree that you are depending on them the breaking of a trust bond is truly, you know this, devastating. Particularly within the sacred covenant of a marriage vow. Where safety and security has been promised one to the other, no matter what. The, it's, it's, I guess it's all through the Old Testament. Here's just one little, in Proverbs chapter six, it says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and disgrace, disgrace will not be wiped away. The book of Hosea uses the metaphor of marital unfaithfulness to depict God's view of Israel and their spiritual adultery against him and the grave consequences. It says, their roots will dry up and they will bear no fruit. And if they do bear, I will slay their cherished offspring. It is, it, it is intense. Infidelity, is, it destroys you at the root where there is no fruit and where you might find fruit. It's contained, it's, it's contaminated. It's not going to be itself fruitful and even be flourishing. 
In the New Testament, the Hebrew writer says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Paul encourages those in the new church in Corinth to flee sexual morality. And he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but this one is on your own body. It's going to destroy you and the world around you. Mark says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, what, what he's saying here is um, legal and civil due process, because divorce exists, don't, it, it won't excuse you from God's scrutiny or exempt you from suffering. Mark says, don't, don't think that. And then we have Jesus chiming in, which I'll, I'll get to in just a minute. Throughout Scripture, God might as well say that infidelity within the context of a covenant relationship, whether with respect to him or a spouse, is devastating, not only to you, but to with those in your social circles, but in the generations to follow. I don't want to keep driving through this without regarding those of you that have been disobedient in this area or have been affected by those who have been disobedient. This is a horribly painful subject. And the world we live in is the world we live in. It's broken. Mistakes are made. Moments in life that we regret. You, you know, you know the pain that comes in these spaces. Whether you're the instigator or the perpetrator, any sane person can look back and go, well, if I, I would do this differently. We all would. I, I don't want to, my intention isn't to judge condemn. I think we can all agree what God is saying is some very destructive things happen as a result of unchecked desire and the way we pursue fulfillment in this world and what it is that we casually, maybe even unconsciously accept as a normative God's saying, you cannot ignore it. There is a way that I've created you, and this is the best, most healthy way. When you live outside of that, it's a very, very big deal. I have compassion, a lot of compassion for the effects that you feel wherever you happen to be in that space. For humanity to thrive and to flourish, adultery will need to be addressed rather than justified. 
hinders our personal connection with God, disrupts internal personal rest. It's a domino effect to other sins. It upsets social harmony. It does damage to your identity. It does damage your very identity. One of the most significant moments in the Scarlet Letter is this time when Hester, the mom, the adulteress, with letter A hanging around, with her, with her daughter, probably maybe early teen daughter at that point, she lets her hair down and takes the A off, takes it off. She's not allowed to do that. She never does it. This one moment, she takes it off. And her daughter loses her mind, completely loses her mind. It, it, it really is though she doesn't recognize her mom without it. Now, there's all kinds of psychological ninja stuff we could do with that idea. It's just a book. But you can understand when you live with something that you've done, it becomes part of you. Your society starts to shape you. Uh, the, the, whatever you feel, the shame and the guilt shapes you to the point where that is, that is who you are which in the context of something that is outside the will of God means that you are something that you are not intended to be. You aren't all that God wants to be. You aren't flourishing. But it, you know how this goes. The stuff that we dabble in, the stuff that we unconsciously do apart from God, the things that we consciously do, we, we tend to want to think, I can just... Keep this in the closet, and you can't. It's, this is one of the devastating effects is that the sins of our life, all of them, are shaping us in the wrong way. This is Proverbs 6. I don't know, Hawthorne, he, this infidelity and its effect damages the root of who you are. It disrupts the intended fruit of your life and the generations to follow. Okay. <laughs> I may have waited too long to put all of us on the hook here. You know, some of you are thinking, I'm sorry I came today. Completely sorry I came today. I should have went with my first instinct and went out for breakfast. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, I don't even know why. What is, what, what, this doesn't pertain to me. No. It pertains to all of us. Every single one of us. Jesus' teaching on the sermon, in the sermon that he did, um, it's captured in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and Mark, and um, it's radical teaching on this definition of adultery because he expands it to include lustful thoughts. Jesus says, you have heard that it's been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. It's just like murder. Anyone who is angry with brother has, is a brother or sister has committed murder in his heart. We're going to dig into what that really means and why Jesus is intensifying. I mean, do you get it? Like, this is intense. Jesus implicates pretty much everybody in adultery by expanding the definition to include what are otherwise very private thoughts 
Like this is the most private thoughts a person can have. And Jesus is saying, that matters. We tend to think about the root causes of adultery, um, disobedience and infidelities, and we wouldn't be wrong, but Jesus is saying thing about this. It's this wonderful, beautiful day where you're getting married and you're with friends and family and you've made promises not only to one another but to God, and then one day you're in bed with somebody else. No, it's not. I mean, that's, maybe that happens one in 10,000 or something like that, where it just, you just, but most normal humans, there's a progression, there's a, there's a pathway here, there's a slope, there's a gradual slouching in the direction. And Jesus is saying, that is the deal. That is what the deal is. Slow simmering of the heart. Adultery is the fruit of other problems, other sins. This is why adultery is the grave, the great sin. Many other sins lead to it, and all other sins happen, all the other because they're broken from it. God's like, I'm going to give Moses 10 things, attention deficit issues and speak well. I got to really boil this down. One of them is going to be adultery. What leads to it? Malcontent, right? Discontent within the relationship, within the marriage. The allure of external things, greener pastures. A misunderstanding of what beauty is. Deceptions about what's fulfilling. Temptations of of another person's pursuit. There's a lot of external things that drive us down this pathway. There's a lot of internal pressures, things that we feel like we deserve or need or want that, are, that drive us. Both of these internal and external things show up on pages one and two of the Bible. The apple is pleasing to the eye and the serpent lies and stirs up internal malcontent. Yes, this and a ton of other things lead down this path. Jesus says, lust. It's lust. Jesus wants to get upstream from the adultery, physical adultery. So he says, if you look, which means what? Well, I'm looking at everything all the time. This is, this is more accurately stare. sustained look, a a, a look that begins to imagine something more than what you're looking at. Lust is staring, sustained look, and creating a movie. Out of that context. You, you can't not look. You cannot stare. You cannot create a movie. You can't, I mean, the, the, God's created a lot of beauty in the world. You ever go out to the memorial tournament, golf tournament? A lot of golf going on, a lot of pretty. You notice it's like a fashion show out there. 
was walking with somebody the other day, and I was like, it's kind of hard to control your thought life at a golf course like this. It's like, wow. You know, come on, let's go. Let's, let's. Those kind of comments that I make here and there, people are a little awkward, honestly. People don't know what to do with that. <clears throat> You're bringing stuff up, right? I remember I had a young guy in my car. I was an up-and-coming pastor, and we were driving down um, our street, and it was like a movie. We're driving down. This red car is parked on the side, and the door opens, and this long leg with a high heel comes. I was like, I was like, and I said the same kind of thing. This is kind of my go-to. It's like, wow, how am I supposed to control my thought life when that sort of thing is jumping out in front of me? Well, you can. You can control your thought life. Jesus is suggesting as much. Don't stare. I saw that. I looked at that. Martin Luther says, hey, man, you, I can't prevent birds from flying over my head, but I can not build a nest in my hair. Jesus is getting at some very deep, personal, private stuff here. It, we, we, we walk a very thin line. You know, it's one thing to tell other people, you know, just stay out of my business. It's none of your business. But we, we tend to do the same thing with God. Hey, this is my thought life, God. Just don't, don't come in here. And Jesus is barging in, basically. He is very amped up. It's getting pretty deep. Most people don't act on those movies. They just enjoy the movie. That's, that's also, this is part of lust, though. It's the wrong path. And Jesus is saying, no, this, that you, you, you want to try to escape this and go, I haven't acted upon it. And, and Jesus is saying, no, that is an action. You are choosing. You've gone from look to stare. You chose that. That's an action. You're building a movie based on what you see. That's an action. And it's adultery in the heart. Why is he so amped about this? Why is he equating lust and adultery? I can't really do this what it deserves, but physical intimacy is highly regarded by God. I actually think society has it wrong. Where they look at, they look at the Christian viewpoint um, and say, oh, you've kept it contained and repressed. And we've, you know, the society embraces it freely. And it's like, no, actually, actually God has a much higher view of it than, than most anybody imagines. When people talk about the view of a Christian, they're actually hearkening back like hundreds of years to kind of Puritan views. Where maybe well-meaning Christians took these scriptures and contorted them into uh, physical intimacy, desire, being dark, not spiritual, which is nothing like what we see in the Bible. From the very beginning, again, back to page one and two, he creates man and woman, institutes marriage, one flesh, creates bodies with all of the functions of the body. And when he gets done creating that, he says what? It is very good. 
Everything else was good. This whole concept right here with people and their bodies and becoming one flesh, very good. It's high praise. Jesus would have grown up with a comprehensive understanding of the goodness and the vibrancy of physical intimacy. Don't read the Song of Songs without your wife or husband. Don't read it with friends. It's all about that. And Jesus would have grown up hearing that. The rabbis of the day, when they took on a disciple, would lead them and teach them everything. They went everywhere with their rabbi. You understand what I'm saying? Everywhere. They were taught everything about life. So was Jesus. Song of Psalm 8, 6. Place me like a seal. This is in the context. If you read the context, you're going to see what it is. It is what it is. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. God's view of this whole thing is that it is like a fire. It is wonderful on many levels. But just like fire, it's got two potentials, dual potentials. When it's in the right context, contained, handled in a godly, responsible way, like fire, it can bring warmth and energy and excitement. You think about fire in, in the inside of a combustion engine. Think about fire inside of a furnace or a stove. What, what's happening with that flame? Uh, uh, even a candle inside of a globe. Good, wonderful, light, power. This is God's view of it. Or uncontained, devastating, disruptive, hab wreaks havoc. Jesus is amped because physical intimacy is a powerful force. Part of your personal flourishing and marital flourishing. The opposite of it, adultery, is completely fracturing to you and society. And he is equating our lustful thinking with a misuse. The opposite of love. I'll get back to that. Lust is the, it's the opposite of love, and I'll show you why in just a second. So a couple more minutes here. Some, how do we get on the right path? How do we, or how do we find our way back to restoration? Well, we do what we're doing right now. We raise awareness, urgency, admit the maladies of heart that we have, the devastating effect of our thoughts. This is what's the hardest thing. It's like, no, your thoughts have a negative effect when they're lustful. The sustained look, the imagined intimate fulfillment, 
we got to raise the awareness. They, no, that stuff that I would say is private and, and it, it actually, we have to go, oh, okay, it matters. Jesus said it matters. And of course, you should practice the things that Jesus said practice. You should cut out your eye. Again, Jesus is amped about this. He's promoting self-mutilation here in order to stop this thing, this lustfulness. Well, you shouldn't. But what does he mean? There are practical things in your life that lead down this path. Even like at the start of them, they may not be bad. Like I, I, I think two weeks ago, I just got rid of social media almost exclusive. Like I just, just got rid of it. There's so much good stuff but I'm just tired of seeing all the bad stuff. Just tired of it. I can't control it. I can't, even, I can't turn it off. I mean, not me, the, the thing. Like, I don't, I don't need it. I don't need this test. I don't need this temptation. I'm going to cut my eye out right here. Gone. What's it for you? Like, how do you... What practical action? Jesus gives us a transformative initiative and says, take action. Take physical action to reduce your exposure. Well, and third, you got to confess. You got to repent. There's no other road to redemption and flourishing but the one of humility. There just isn't. Eventually, you just got to bring it into the light. My wife and I learned that very early on in our marriage, that things in the dark, bad things in the dark tend to grow and get worse. Bad things brought to light tend to diminish and go away. It's a, you don't expect it to happen, but it does. I mean, there might be an initial bump at the beginning. It's get a little rough when you're vulnerable, but it's better, better to confess. So James says, hey, confess. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Confess, repent in the right spaces, not on Twitter, not on, you know, don't email your whatever, just, where it's appropriate, confess. Engage God in thoughts and prayers. This is the thing. We tend to partition God off from our thoughts. I think one of the most powerful things we can do in the midst of a temptation or struggle is to engage God. He is alive and well through his spirit in our life today. The spirit does do work. This is where the conversations went when I was raising my boys. They would find themselves in these tempting situations. And you have a couple choices. As a parent, you can rely on willpower. You can try to get your children to just do what's right, which sometimes actually makes it worse. It can. It's not bad to like just don't do it. And some people can do it. Other people, just not doing it makes it the center of their whole life, not doing it, not doing it. It's like, don't think about a pink elephant. And it's like, ah, what is the answer? Well, it starts with engaging God. A confession, even in the earliest thoughts. God, here I can feel it going. I, I, I looked too long. I, stared, I, I went down this path. I, I opened the thing. God, I, 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 as soon as you turn toward God, and my, my, I think my boys would attest to this. I said, trust God to move and to change you in the moment. It's not magic. I don't know how he does it, through the Spirit. But as soon as you begin to pray, as soon as you begin to posture yourself toward God, is an opportunity for the spirit to move in and shift. And it is, it, I, many of you probably experience this, but it's, it's almost a life hack. Just pray. Bring it to God early. 
I think this verse is oftentimes contorted, and you'll see what I mean, Psalm 37. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Like true warm-blooded Americans, we read that God will give me what I want. He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, I desire that big shiny thing or that beautiful one. He will give you those, the desires of your heart. No, no, no. Delight in the Lord. Turn to the Lord and he will give you the right desires in your heart. He will. It's a big part of it. Just pray. Where we partition off our thoughts, don't do that. Pray continually, Paul says. Be in in communion with God, and the Spirit will move in and give you the capacity and the desire to do the right thing. Obviously, this shouldn't be fourth on the list or fifth. Lean into the mercy of God. We all need it. He's, Jesus says, look, you're, we're all implicated in, in thought. Lean into the mercy of God. When you start thinking about your own thoughts, whether it's adultery or anything else that is outside the, the way of God, it's a little overwhelming. Part of the reason we don't do it is because it's just endless hours of confession. Well, good news is the grace of God and the work of Christ is greater. It's greater. I, I'm paraphrasing Paul here. I would, I would never suggest that you go sin in order to experience the grace of God. But you do, and you can, and you should. Experience the mercy and the grace of God in the spaces where you've been off the path. And finally, I said I would come back to this. Love. The solution to lust is to recognize that it's the opposite of love and that we should instead love. When the disciples asked Jesus to boil down the commands, which I think must have been a head scratcher, he's like, I gave you 10. You need, okay. So he goes, okay, one through four, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Murder, adultery, cheating. Love others. Love God. Love others. We've been talking about this quite a bit. We talk about it all the time. Our fellow man, those sitting next to you, around you, that you sit next to on the airplane that you drive in front of and behind in the streets and at work and every, every single person that you look at is made in the image of God. And it is one of our primary mandates as fellow man and woman in this world not only to be redeemed, but to be facilitators of the redemption and the flourishing of others. Every single person you see, you have some responsibility to help them find their way back to God, to be redeemed and to flourish as a human being. They are an image bearer. As bad as they may look at a particular time in their life, as bad as they may have been to you at a particular time in your life, they are made in the image of God and it is the hope of his heart, should be the hope of ours, that they are redeemed and flourishing. Everybody we see, the instinct that should be growing in our Christian lives is to love that person not to build a movie with them.
We are to be in the form of Jesus, to be sacrificial in our love of mankind. That is, to give up so that others can gain, to lose so that others might win, to die so that another might live. This is how we are to manage our thoughts. This is how we are to view every single person that we see. Do you see how lusting is a reversal of God's model? When we lust, we have begun to view that person's existence as a means to our goals and my fulfillment. And you are effectively eroding your own roots with that thought, your soul. And the fruit of that eroded root system is the sowing of selfishness and brokenness into the world. Jesus says, love. Of all the things that you can do to break this cycle of adulterous thinking that exists in all of us, is to change your mind about the way you see other people. I'll finish with these three little statements here. God says, no adultery. This obedience is a big part of why you don't flourish. I love you, and I made you to enjoy something much greater when it comes to physical intimacy. Jesus says, no lust. It's adultery. I love you, I forgive you. Instead, love, this is how you flourish, this is how societies flourish. Mother Teresa, when asked how to change the world, says, go love your family. Indeed. God, we have to commit this time and this space and these Awareness to you because it's overwhelming. The world is shaping us when we're sleeping, it seems. Constantly shaping us away from your way. And as a people of God, we live together with our aggregate brokenness, our past failures, our current struggles. But you call us forward into a healthy, flourishing, loving, wonderful return to you, our fullest identity and a contribution unlike any other to society. Would you Give us wisdom and guide us and give us humility and strength to be vulnerable and open and honest and loving. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Justin. Good.